This morning we're going to continuing our series in Luke. Um, here in Luke, we're being talking about the good news for the lost. Um, it's a grace to worship together this morning, and my prayer for all of us is that we who are blessed are living to be a blessing for our world. Um, this morning, as we get into the text, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter five, the calling of the first disciples. And as I thought about this in, in light of the series, what's the good news here? Um, the more I dug into the story, I realized that this is really a passage that's not just about calling out disciples, but it's also about giving good news to people who are unsure people who are unsure about who Jesus is. Now, a lot of times for a lot of us, when we think about faith, we either grew up in a setting or our own mindset has this thinking of like faith and doubt are opposite enemies, right? Or diametrically opposed, right? Faith versus doubt. And, and I don't feel like that is always the most helpful um, definition or even the most helpful mindset and posture when it comes to faith and doubt. Because faith and doubt it don't even mean the same thing. For example, doubt talks about being unsure, right? Um, and faith is, is, is assurance. So they can't really be opposites in that sense that the opposite of faith would be unbelief, which would be an absence of faith, right? And, and so doubt then is when we're unsure and, and what does that look like? So I'll give you an example. Yesterday, um, got a note on my watch and then my phone and then my computer that there was a shooting in Jacksonville, right? I don't know if you've heard about this. When I heard that shooting, I looked it up, I had doubt. My doubt was, is there actually good in the world, right? If we live in a world where this is not only normal, that this can happen, that someone can go into a neighborhood, harm people, and we just keep going on, right? I had doubt. I was unsure that there was actually good in the world. Around that same time, I got a text message from another friend who was just like, hey, have you heard about this story? And the story was about this young guy, I could say young now because you know I'm old, right? Um, he's about 33 years old, um, grew up in the foster system, I believe in Cincinnati. And even though he's 33 years old, when he was about 16, he was put out of the foster system because he wouldn't be, like no one would adopt him, so he was living on his own. By 18, he had graduated high school. By 21, he had adopted and, and became a guardian for two of his siblings, right? When they aged out of the system, he adopted two or three more kids. And when those kids told him that they had um, siblings in the system, he adopted those two as well. So now at 33 years old, as a single guy, he's raising five kids, right? So when I got that story, I was just like, oh, there is good in the world, right? And, and so doubt will make us not sure Right? And the joy of faith is that it's not the, 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 the confidence simply that we have in ourselves, but it's the confidence and assurance of what is true. So why, as I had doubt reading about Jacksonville and reading about that tragedy, I can have faith restored of that doubt that I had. Now, what are we talking about? In Scripture, we define faith like this. A common example is Hebrews 11, right? Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. So if faith and doubt are not opponents, what are they? Well, I think they're dance partners. Some people will say it's two sides of the same coin. Uh, Tillich is one who says that, that doubt is actually an element of faith, right? Uh, doubt is not the opposite, but it's an element of faith. Frederick Buechner, in his own way, said doubt is actually the instigator of faith. I believe the exact quote is, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and they keep it moving, right? I cleaned that up a little bit and said it's the instigator of faith, right? Uh, 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 doubt then, when it's answered, it's faith assured. So I hear this tragic news. I doubt about goodness. I hear another story. I now have my doubts answered by faith assured. Now, there's a, a Elton Trueblood who actually puts it like this, right? 
Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservations. And I think that's where we want to dwell and kind of sit with as we get into this text. Because what we find in Peter is not someone who didn't want to believe. I would even argue it's not even someone who doesn't believe yet. But it was someone who wasn't ready to follow. It was someone who wasn't ready, right, to to, to love Jesus, commit to Jesus, trust Jesus without reservations. And so that's the kind of faith that Jesus calls out of us. So as we get into the story about these first disciples, may we be reminded that it's not just the calling of the first disciples, but really it's a story of faith. And may we always be reminded that our God is not afraid of our doubt. That when we bring our doubt to him, our faith can be assured. Because God's true desire is not just to use that doubt to spur on your faith or to dance with you or to instigate your faith. But I believe our God's true desire is to get you to a place of trust without reservations. Amen? If you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Luke chapter 5. We'll be reading the first 11 verses of Luke 5. I believe we'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well, starting at verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats, left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so both boats that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much. That you meet us where we are. You meet us in our frailty and our weakness. You meet us in our doubt and uncertainty. You meet us when we're not even willing to fully trust you without reservations. But Holy Spirit, not only do you meet us, you show us who God is. You show us what good is. You show us why God is worthy of all our faith. Worthy of all our trust. Worthy of all our reliance. And Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you for this story, the calling of these disciples. May it be a reminder to us that you desire for us not just to believe, but to follow. Not just to be able to articulate our faith, but to live out our faith. And you desire not just a part of us, but all of us. May we be disciples that follow you. May we be disciples that obey you. May we be those who trust you without reservations. In your holy and precious name, amen. So this, this, this passage in Luke is actually um, the dramatic conclusion, right, of what I like to see as an everyday progression. 
Because by the time you get to Luke and what happens with Jesus in the boat and Peter, there's a lot that's happened already in the background of the story. Now, if you go to Matthew and Mark, one of the things I love in Scripture is when all four Gospels have the same story. Because I'm like, yes, there's more text, right? There's more information. You get a whole well-rounded picture. Well, what's interesting here is that Matthew and Mark are fairly straightforward, right? I call these the Sunday school descriptions, right? Like, I don't know if you grew up in Sunday school, you sang that Fishers of Men song, right? Like, that's what Matthew and Mark are. Like, Follow me, I'll make you Fishers of Men, right? It's just, it's fairly straightforward. Jesus is preaching. He sees the, the disciples on the shore. And he sees them on the boat. And he says, hey, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And, and, and so, like, you get through that and you're just like, okay, that seems like a pretty straightforward story. But Luke and John add a lot more to the story. So what we see here is a culmination. That's why I say it's not just about Peter not believing in Jesus. It's about Peter fully trusting Jesus. And that's a different thing. Right? And that, that's the distinction I want us to hold on. You can believe in Jesus without fully trusting Jesus. You can believe in Jesus today without fully trusting him tomorrow. That's the dance of faith. Even more tricky is you can have full faith in Jesus in one aspect of your life and not have any faith in the other aspect of your life. This is the dance of faith. So, so John adds a lot more. In fact, uh, Matthew 4, Mark 1, straightforward. John 1 is going to tell you that it's not just a story about Peter. It's actually a story about Andrew. And I love Andrew. I think Andrew is one of the most unsung heroes in the Bible, right? Like we know about Peter. We know about John. We know about all the other disciples. We don't know much about Andrew except this. The first thing we learn about Andrew is that he's actually a disciple of John the Baptist. And that's important because what it says is that as John is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus, as John is preaching and teaching and pointing to the Messiah, he has people that are following him. So much so that they're like, hey, John, aren't you the Messiah? And John has to refute it. No, I'm not the Messiah. And John, in true John fashion, when he was done eating his crickets, sees Jesus one day and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I always picture that as John just being loud. But I also now think it's like lifting the monkey, like the, the burden off his back, right? It's just like, listen, he's the guy, right? Like, it's him, right? Like, leave me alone, let me get my crickets, right? So John proclaims Jesus as the Lamb of the world, right? And the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what's amazing here is Andrew has the childlike faith that I wish we all had always. All John has to say is, look, Jesus is the one. And Andrew says, yes, that's amazing. Jesus, I'm just going to follow you. And, and the text doesn't make it uh, kind of clear if Jesus knows that Andrew's following him. Because eventually Jesus turns around and is like, hey, you good? Right? And Andrew's like, yeah, I'm just going to follow you. And Jesus like, okay. And Andrew goes and spends a day with Jesus, right? Imagine that. He's a follower of John the Baptist. He's waiting for the Messiah. All John has to say is, that's the Messiah. He now believes, spends a whole day with Jesus. And the scripture says the first thing that he thinks to do is to go and tell Peter. And he tells Peter, he says, Peter, I found him. I found the Messiah we've been praying for for generations. I found the one that John's been waiting for, clearing the way for. I found Jesus. And Peter doesn't say much. But Peter goes with Andrew. That's what I'm saying. You can believe without fully trusting. Peter, at this point, goes along with Andrew, sits with Jesus, and Jesus looks him in the eye and says what? Simon, today I'll call you Cephas in the Aramaic, right? Or Peter in the Greek, which means rock. So even though Peter had yet to fully trust God, 
to fully trust Jesus, Jesus had not only invited him in, but he had given a preview to his destiny of what it was going to be life with Jesus was going to be. I said that funny. What life with Jesus was going to be like, right? He invites him in and gives him a preview of this destiny by saying, I know they call you Simon, but I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to call you Peter. In fact, you're the one I'm going to build my church on. At no point in the story has Peter fully trusted. So this is all happening, right? So Andrew first, then Simon, they come to Jesus. Luke adds a little bit more context. That's John's setting. Luke says, okay, listen, Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to prove it by telling you the, the Hebrew folktale, the story that we all prayed for, the birth narrative. I'm going to give you every single detail, and it's all going to point to the Messiah. From the angels to the shepherds, from Herod to, to Mary to Zechariah, I'm going to give you everything. I'm even going to give you his genealogy that's all going to point to what? He is the Messiah, the chosen one. And then after he gets through that, starting at chapter 3 and 4, Luke is going to say, now I'm going to prove he's the Messiah, not just by his narrative and his birth and what was promised, but by his ministry. And what are the marks in Luke 3 and 4 that we see about Jesus? One, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we said this last week, if Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? If the God of the universe is in this world, walking everyday scenes, needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of God, how much more do we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? He's empowered and he's tested in the wilderness. So Luke is going to say again, look at all these temptations that Satan laid at his feet. And last week we said, remember, those temptations might have been conversations. And those conversations didn't take the whole 40 days and 40 nights. And that the wilderness was hard. The wilderness might have been summed up by the gospel writers in these three conversations, but for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, he was tired, he was weak, he was fully reliant on God. And so after he comes to the wilderness, right, he's ready to step on the scene and announce his ministry, the very first thing we learned from Luke is that his own people rejected him. And that's the story we learned about last week, right? He's preaching in a synagogue. He opens the scroll to Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. And everyone's loving it. They're like, this is great. Until Jesus says, but y'all don't really get it. Because I didn't just come for you. I came for the world. Just like in the Old Testament, God didn't just come for Israel. God worked with Syria. God worked with, with the, the widow of Zarephath. And they're like, wait, God wants to work with other people. Let's kill Jesus. And that's where we ended last week, right? Like they literally drove him to the edge of the cliff and they were going to throw him off. And the miracle is that he walks through. So Luke is building all of this up. So by the time we get to chapter 5, right, it's not just, oh, follow me, I'll, I'll make you fisher of people. By the time you get to chapter 5, you see that Jesus' rapport, Jesus' report, Jesus' news, everything about Jesus is building up, is building up, is building up. So in our passage, Jesus first attracts a crowd by the lake. What's interesting about the Sea of Galilee is that back then, it was not just a bustling fishing village. A lot of times we talk about, well, they're fishermen. There had to be a lot of fishers. One of the things that, I mean, we, I, I live in Harrisburg, so I can relate to the ancients. You might not because you might be further away, right? But the ancient people had to live by water. They had to live by rivers, right? Like that was a source of life. So when you picture the Sea of Galilee, don't just pick up like this little town, you know, like last week we said Galilee might have had like 3 million people, the whole region actually, right? But, but where we are in the story was there was a lot of settlements, there was a lot of towns all along and around the Sea of Galilee. So it was easy to attract the following. Said this last week, if God was going to send his son at such a time as this, Galilee with all its trade routes with all its diversity, with its, its, its known uh, kind of pillars into all these different aspects of the 
the world might have been the perfect place. Apparently, God knows what God's doing. It's shocking, I know. But when Jesus shows up here in the story, he starts preaching, and the crowd starts gathering and gathering and gathering, so much so that he's like, oh, wait, my buddy Simon's over there. Let me go preach in his boat. And what's interesting is, again, Simon is not ready to fully believe. Yet, even though he's washing his nets, and I don't know if you've ever seen fishermen work, right? Um, I hadn't until maybe a couple months ago in Alaska, and it's really fascinating. It's, it's an art to it. Like, it's beautiful, actually. Like, it's not just hard work, but it's like, it's poetic. Maybe it was just me, right? Like, you know, I was just feeling myself. I was like, this is beautiful, you know? But also, they don't want to be bothered. <laughs> you know, like, there's a, there's a poetry about what they're doing, but you mess up the poetry by asking questions. Like, I was just like, well, tell me about the fish, you know, like, why, why, why do you do this? Why do you watch that? They're like, okay, just go over there. You know, just take a picture or something, right? But Simon is literally tending the nets. They've been out all night, right? They caught nothing. And Jesus is like, hey, Simon, um, can I use your boat to preach, right? So Jesus comes onto the boat and he preaches. Now, what's interesting to me is in this story, it is not Simon's doubt that is the issue. In fact, Jesus meets Simon in the place of his doubt. God is not scared of your doubt. Every doubt you've ever had, you're not the first or the last to ever have that doubt. Every doubt that God's ever assured you of, you're not the first or the last to ever be assured of that doubt. And if we're willing to let Jesus in, even in our place of doubt, he meets us. So, so Jesus gets onto the boat, meets Simon in this place of doubt. What does Simon have in this interaction? Yes, he's doing his nets and, and kind of like eavesdropping, listening to the sermon. But what does Simon have in this place of doubt? Well, first thing he has is Andrew's witness and testimony. Andrew's all in, right? Andrew is all in. This is the Messiah. I spent a day with him. It's the one God has promised. We need to follow him. Simon had the witness, yet that wasn't enough. Simon also had Jesus' invitation. We talked about that a few seconds ago, right? Like Simon had Jesus' invitation and says, listen, they call you Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to build my church upon you, right? Invitation and a promised future. But that still wasn't enough, right, for Peter to fully trust him. Simon also had not just news of Jesus' healing and work, his own mother-in-law. Right? The chapter before, Jesus stays with Simon. So again, this isn't just a random fisherman that he hopped on the boat. Jesus stayed in Simon's house. His mother-in-law had high fever. And what does Jesus do? He heals her of the fever. And this is one of the, the, the trickiest uh, passages for me in Scripture because it's like he heals her of the fever and then she waited on them. I'm like, y'all can't let the lady rest a little bit? You know, just like, I get it's a miracle and she's healed, but can't somebody else do the waiting on? That's just me. When we get to heaven, we'll sort it out, right? But she waits on them, right? So Simon had not only heard about the miracles. In his own house, Jesus had done the miracles. And that wasn't enough for him to fully trust God. And now, on the shore, with the crowd all around them, with Jesus preaching, right? That still wasn't enough to trust fully. I say all that because when we struggle to trust God fully, sometimes in our faith, We've been taught that's because we don't believe. Or that's because we don't believe strong enough. Or that's because we're not a good enough Christian. Well, if Simon can doubt with Andrew's testimony, 
with Jesus' invitation, with his mother-in-law's healing, with the crowd all around him, if Simon can doubt and Jesus wasn't offended by it, how much more does God welcome your doubt? Because your doubt is just room for God to move. Your doubt is not an opponent of your faith. It's a question you have that God's willing to answer. So, so Simon had all this doubt, and yet Jesus meets him there. And the other thing about the doubt where Jesus meets Simon is that his doubt became his place of comfort. When we say God meets us where we're at, it is not just a bumper sticker or a T-shirt. It's the reality of our lives. Simon knew the sea. So Jesus knew that if my words were not enough, if my healing was not enough, if my stories were not enough, if my invitation was not enough, if my working in the lives of the people around you was not enough, I will go where you are. And Simon knew the sea, so Jesus goes to the sea. Simon had just worked all night, caught nothing. Now the thing about fishermen, they're very knowledgeable. So imagine this guy might know religion, he might know faith, he might know God. But last I checked, he was a carpenter. Right? And there's no guarantee he was even a good one. All we know is a carpenter, right? I keep looking for the scripture that said Jesus was a good carpenter. We just assume because he's God, he was good. But I know people who are carpenters. It's hard work, right? I will give up carpentry for ministry any day. That's just me, trying to be more like Jesus when I grow up. But Simon can look him in the eyes and says, I know you know carpentry, but, like, literally, this is my thing. Like, I know this, right? Like, like I, I was out here. And I think sometimes we do that to Jesus, too, where we say, you know what? This doubt that I have is not just my comfort, it's not just my home, but it's something I know. And this thing that I need to trust you on, I'm just not willing. But what I love about Simon is that even before he's willing to fully trust God, he still submits to God. Because when Jesus says, no, no, let's go out, let's go out and do, get some fish, right? He addresses Jesus by calling him master. And that's significant. Because the scripture writer seems to be telling us that we can doubt and God's okay with it. But even in our doubts, we ought to be submitting to God. And that's the word. That we ought to be submitting even in doubt. Simon fully doubts that Jesus can actually catch fish. He fully doubts that he's ready to give all of himself to Jesus at this point. But he still uses the Greek epistata, meaning Lord, master, commander, boss, if you will. Right? Meaning that, like, I know the sea, but if you, boss, want me to go, I'm going to do it. And what's fascinating is that because Simon believed, he obeyed. I find that interesting. Soren Kierkegaard once said, it's so hard to believe because it's so hard to obey. There seems to be this link between believing and obeying. One of the curses of the Enlightenment is that we've now joined believing to knowing. Believing to maybe experiencing. And we as, you know, post-post-millennial, whatever we are now, post-post-modern, uh, whatever we are, we've added not just belief at something that, like, you know, but it's got to be something that only I physically experience, that my experience trumps everyone else's experience, right? And so that's what we're working with. But yet, with God, belief has to not just be what you know. It has to not just be what you experience, it has to be seen in your obedience. And so Simon obeys Jesus even though he doesn't fully trust him. And that gives me hope. 
Because in the areas of life where I struggle to fully trust God, I know that if I honor God by submitting to God, God will come through. But I also have hope that God doesn't expect me to always fully trust him, and God doesn't throw me out when I don't. He wants me to fully trust him, but he also knows that sometimes he's got to work on me a little bit, and that's okay too. So Simon here is blessed because he believed, and because he believed, he obeys. And then Jesus shows that he's Lord of heaven and earth and the sea too, or at least the lake. Because a lot of the miracles happen on this lake. And I think what's fascinating about this is that the catch is so big that it's going to break their nets. And so they call over to get some help. And it's not just James and John, but it's all the partners. In fact, it's such a big catch that when they pull into one boat, it has to go into another boat, and it starts to sink. And I find it fascinating. It wasn't his mother-in-law's healing that did it. It wasn't his brother's testimony that did it. It wasn't Jesus' invitation that did it. It wasn't Jesus preaching and all the people believing that did it. It was fish. It was fish. And I don't bemoan Simon Peter for that. I give God the praise and glory for that. Because what it tells me is that what I or, or how I believe or what brings me to fully trust God might be a little bit different than yours. And that's okay. Like, you might need something else to, to kind of stamp your feet and say, yes, I fully believe Jesus. But whatever it is, praise God he's willing to meet you in that place of comfort. Praise God he's willing to meet you in that center of doubt. Praise God that he's willing to give you an abundance of fish if that's what you need to fully believe. And I also love that when God shows up, it's a communal thing. That this calling of the disciples, think about how much community is happening in this set setting, right? First you have maybe tens, hundreds of people that are gathered around the boat hearing Jesus speak. Then you have Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James and John, all the other partners. And you have for them to embrace the full miracle of God, they all have to work together to lift up the fish. There's a lesson in there somewhere. Perhaps when God saves us, it's not just for us. Amen? Perhaps when God calls us, it's not just the individual calling. Amen? Perhaps when God calls us, it's what is the work we can do together? Because if we want to catch the big fish... All the fish, we ought to be in the boat pulling with Jesus, pulling with one another. Amen? And it's at this that Simon fully trusts because he finally sees Jesus as who he is. The Messiah, the Lord God, the chosen one, the God of Israel, the God of land, the God of earth, the God of sea, the one who came to change and save the world forever. But something also interesting happens. It's not only does Simon fully see who Jesus is, he also sees who he is. He says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. When we truly see who God is, perhaps for most of us, it's the first time that we can fully see who we are. And Simon isn't just saying, get away from me. I'm sinful. I'm not good enough. But he's recognizing that, oh my goodness, not only have my doubts been assuaged, or not only have my doubts been, been addressed, my goodness, that you're willing to meet me where I am. You're willing to show me in a way that I understand. You're willing to be my God and our God too. 
And so when Simon fully sees who Jesus is, the only thing he can call is, God, forgive me, I have fallen short. And I love Jesus' response. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. That the sense in the Hebrew is stop being fearful. And I like that. Because the heart of what Jesus is saying is that, Simon, on this thing that you've been doubting, stop doubting. Stop doubting now. I've come through, haven't I? Stop doubting now. And I love this because when Jesus calls the disciples, there's always like weird stories. Like Nathaniel's one of my favorite ones, right? Like Philip and Nathaniel, when they're called, it's just like, hey, uh, Nathaniel, there's, there's goes Nathaniel. There's no deceit in him in all of Israel, right? And Nathaniel's like, whoa, <laughs> that's, that's a great introduction, right? If I walked in a room and Jesus was like, there's no deceit in that one, I'm like, yes, thank you, Jesus. I'm very humble too, right? But what Nathaniel says is like, wow, that's amazing. And Jesus is like, why is that amazing? I saw you before. I saw you when you are under the tree. He's like, what? You saw me under a tree? But the same thing happens here with the fishermen. And he's like, what? You made all this fish. And yet Jesus, right, says, I want you to stop being fearful. Give me your doubts and ask me to answer them, and I will. But when I answer them, it's time for you to get to work. When I answer them, it's time for you to go. When I answer them, it's time for you to follow. One of the most fascinating things in the book of Luke is that Luke ties discipleship to following. He tries, ties believing to obedience. And putting all that together, it means that we cannot say we believe Jesus if we do not obey Jesus. We cannot say we follow Jesus if we do not submit to Jesus. And if we're going to submit and believe and follow Jesus, that's how we become these fishers of people. Ralph Waldo Emerson has this quote where he says, we are all born believing. Uh, a person bears beliefs as a tree bears apples. And what he means by that is simply that everyone believes in something. Even people who say, I'm agnostic, I'm atheistic, everyone believes in something. There's something they hold dear. So the question for us becomes, what is the thing or who is the one that we hold dear? I think the grace that comes in this Christian walk is kind of nailed by Hudson Taylor when he says this. God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. Because here's the thing. If you already have great faith and you're not following God, then who is your faith? in right if you have this great faith but your life is not submission obedience and, and following God what is your faith in and so the grace for us is to know that God isn't looking for you to be the perfect Christian to always have it together to be perfectly strong in every aspect of your faith God is not asking you to be perfect just to trust just to believe just to obey. What does that mean to us as people who are willing to say we're followers of Jesus? Because if God's looking for followers and not just believers, that means we ought to be obeying. So my question to you this morning is where is your place of doubt? What is the boat that you're sitting in this morning that you're just not willing to fully trust God in? First thing I want to say is that if you have that doubt, it's okay. God can handle it. God just wants you to stop trying to handle it on your own. 
God just wants you to stop trying to think. You can figure it out on your own, by yourself. Let Jesus in. Let Jesus in. Because he desires to come onto the boat. But more than the boat, he desires to come and live inside of you. We can find Jesus in our doubt. Amen? Because our God is bigger than any doubt we'll ever have. Amen? Madeline Lengel has this quote, and she says, The minute we begin to think we know all the answers, we tend to forget all the questions. And we become smug like the Pharisee who listed all his considerable virtues and thank God that he was not like other people. Those who believe they believe in God, but without passion in their heart, without anguish in the mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. What she's saying is that your doubt might prove that you need God. And that's okay. Your doubt might prove that you don't have it all together. And that's okay. Your doubt might move you to trust God more, and that's the ultimate goal of discipleship. Not just to know God, not just to believe God, not just to obey God, but to get to a point where you fully trust God without reservation in every aspect of your life. And so then with this understanding, you get to the end of the passage and you say, this is why when they got to the shore, it doesn't say they sold the fish for profit. It doesn't say they passed out the fish. It doesn't even say they filleted the fish. What does it say? It says they pulled their boats up on the shore. They left everything and followed him. If there's something holding you back from fully trusting God this morning, I want to invite you to give that to God and know that when God comes through, the response for you then is to give it all up and fully follow God. Amen? This morning we're going to be taking in communion together. Hopefully as you came in, you are able to receive the elements. If you did not, just raise your hand. Steve is in the back. We can be able to pass it to you. Um, so just raise your hand. He'll come around. Um, again, for us, communion is something that we're all, we call to do and we celebrate in. We don't ask that you're a member of the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church, but we do ask that you belong to the Church of Jesus. As Pastor Carmen comes up, um, like to also invite the worship team as well. Just keep your hands up as we get ready. In the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake in the bread and the cup. The deacons, again, or Steve is right here. Just raise your hand. We'll be happy to get you the elements. As you receive them, we ask that you hold them until all have been served and we can partake together. Again, the table of the Lord is for all who believe, for all who have received Jesus Christ as Lord. We now invite you to come to the table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return.
Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Please join us now in the responsive readings. This one is taken from Philippians chapter 3. Um, it is up front. You can follow along. We want to know Christ. We want to know the fellowship of his suffering. We want to know the power of his resurrection. We press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. We forget what is behind us and press on toward what is ahead of us. One way that we press on in our faith is to share in the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that you have made yourself known to us. Holy Spirit, for revealing who Jesus is, for calling us to Jesus, for bringing us to the point of faith, we give you all the glory and thanks. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for how you loved us so freely, so willingly. You gave your body to be broken for us. So now as we take this bread, may we remember this supper, may we remember this feast, may we remember your brokenness and your sacrifice that makes us whole, that redeems us, that cleanses us of all unrighteousness. We thank you for being broken so that we can be healed. In your name we pray, amen. Now our final reading. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. same way after the supper we took he took the cup which in the jewish passover feast is called the cup of blessing and he told his disciples this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me father we thank you god we thank you that forgiveness can be found in you we thank you god that you have taken our sins as far as the east is from the west and to see for unforgetfulness of forgetfulness lord so that you only god can see the righteousness you have placed in us we thank you god that we can stand before you god whole and healed because it is you that has made it possible we thank you father for the healing that's found in you the joy and the comfort the peace all that you have to offer we thank you that all that is found in the blood that was shed for us and while we may not know the cost we want to say with a grateful heart thank you thank you my brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless oh, in the same way, where am I? Oh, in the same way after the supper. No, I read that. Yeah, thank you. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take this cup remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Thank you, Lord.
Um, at this time, I'd like to invite any of the pastors up, uh, all the pastors up. We'd love to pray for you, um, either in response to something in the service or anything you've got going on. We'd love to pray for that. If there's something that, you know, maybe you're holding on to in doubt that you need to step out in faith, we'd love to pray for that as well. So please come up and let's pray.